Hello and welcome to the housing bonanza episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It is a blockbuster show for you this week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm joined by Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And most excitingly, we have Connor Doherty from the New York Times. You are based in California, and you have written a spectacularly good book called Golden Gates, all about... Housing. Golden Gates Fighting for Housing in America is the name of the book. And it is this look at all sorts of different people from the very richest to the very poorest fighting for housing in America. And we are going to do a deep dive into all of the issues surrounding housing in this episode. We're going to talk about zoning. We're going to talk about homelessness. We're going to talk about nimbyism. We're going to talk about the great hope of the millennial generation. Um, we're going to talk about Frisco, Texas. We're going to talk about Atherton, California. We're going to talk a lot about Lafayette. And we're going to talk uh, in wonderful detail about is house prices something we want to go up or is house prices something we want to go down all of that we yeah we, by by the way yeah, spoiler alert we, we haven't quite Unclear. answered that one um all of which is coming up on slate money hi this is dahlia lithwick host of slate's legal podcast amicus if you're listening to this show you might be interested in amicus's live show that we're hosting in washington dc on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So I was just talking to um, a guy from the National Association of Realtors who, you know, obviously is not entirely. It's a great time to buy. Um but he like he was actually saying that prices are too high. I've never heard anyone from the NAR ever say that before. He's like, no, prices are too high. They they need to stop rising like this. But more interestingly, he said that we basically need to be building one and a half million housing units a year just to keep up with population growth. Um, and we've been nowhere near that for the past decade. And so we have a shortfall of about five million units of housing, which we need to make up somehow. And no one has a clue and no one has a plan how we can get close to building 5 million units, let alone keep on um, building those 1.5 million units on top of that. Totally. So what happened was the Great Recession happened and uh, the whole construction industry got like decimated. Uh, anybody who was covering that at that time watched, you know, bankruptcy after bankruptcy. And on top of that, a lot of these skilled tradesmen and women who are, you know, plumbers, you know, electricians, you know, all the people that really determine 
they, they are the sticky, hard parts of your labor supply. You know, you cannot just have a bunch of those tomorrow. Those those professions, a lot of the kind of older people in that profession just left. They just like, let's say they're 53 and they thought they were going to work till 55. They're like, I'm out. I'm going to Florida now. So that industry got wiped out. Then the Great Recession ended and we had a huge demand for housing, but there was no industry there to to create it. So if you look at our rate of housing construction right now, it is still way below where it was in like the 2000s or the 90s. So I, and when I make these comparisons, I'm not talking about the like obviously inflated rates of 2006. I'm talking about like the the economic cycle before that. So we the amount of housing we are building right now nationally is I think lower than at any period that w- recent period that wasn't a recession. Yeah, is there a public policy. I mean, your book covers a lot of California politics and a lot of like YIMBY bills. And we'll start talking a little bit more about what YIMBYs are um, later on. But just w- without going too much into into that kind of regional state politics, is there anything on a big level, national scale, since we are in a, an election year, is there anything that the American government has historically been able to do to deal with this kind of a crisis. So the reason I did focus on local stuff in the book is, and we can get into that later, is that it really, a lot of this is determined locally and that's that's where it happens. The federal government's role has traditionally been to give a bunch of money for things, uh, be they freeways, which are obviously just an excuse to build housing around them, and, uh, and, and of course HUD and things like that and tax programs that you know incentivize homeownership. If you look at the Democratic debate right now, every single major candidate has a pretty robust housing plan. And in addition to things like national rent control, which I'm not even sure that's possible, but that's clearly the Bernie Sanders uh, one, um, and subsidies for struggling renters and stuff like that, every single one of them has a major zoning plan of some kind, which is, if you think about it, the federal government inserting itself or at least talking about inserting itself into local politics and trying to stimulate housing supply and essentially dense housing supply. Whether or not any of those plans ever see the light of day, like a great many things in the democratic debate are, are that's probably a low chance of that, but it does say where the conversation is right now and where everyone's thinking right now. And I think that alone is significant. And, and, and what's I, clear from your book is that everything is zoning. Well, I I don't. Th- well, I don't, I hope that's not clear <laughs> in my book because I think that no, the funding side of it is a huge piece of it. Uh, I I'm just saying, the funding side is a huge piece of it. I let me say that over and over again. Well, I mean, I just well, think you have of, to build it though. But one of the things you say in the book is that like people fight over, you know, a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there in funding, whereas like simply upzoning. Um, a bunch of land near transit would create hundreds of billions of dollars in value. But one thing you really make clear again and again, it's like even if all the workers came back to the industry, the costs of building things are ridiculous. Like even if there's money coming in, it's being spent on on things that I honestly don't understand that makes it cost uh, like a half a million dollars to build a unit of affordable housing, which 
makes no sense. Um, so how how is there what's the plan to get the cost of building down? Yeah. Why is it so expensive? I mean, is it one of the things you kind of bring up in the book that part of this all related, right? That part of the reason it's so expensive is because of the zoning issues. It takes forever. You have to go through so many regulations or so many legal issues and that dramatically increases the cost. Totally. So it's everything, right? It's the land cost, which is essentially zoning since the cost of land is basically just a function of what you can do on it. Uh, And then it is the, um, the, cost of actually building the building regardless of what the land costs and then um and then you know of course materials and all these sorts of things T- time delays all those things oh when you had that um you had that whole section on the 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 way people build houses hasn't changed yeah There's exactly no te- since 1948 update. so the te- like 1948 was, the, was the, the technological zenith of yes. housing te- house building well, technology as i've always said like we never really solve housing problems in this country. We solve transportation problems. You know, if you think about it, we had like buggies and then we had like trains and then we have like highways. It's just always an excuse to open up more land. The cable car originally was basically a real estate play. How do I open up land for development at the top of big hills? So what we, unless we start creating cars that can go, you know, 400 miles an hour, you know, on freeways safely or something, which I'm not holding my breath for, uh, we are going to have to start solving actual housing problems instead of transportation problems. There has actually been a lot of really exciting stuff in modular housing and, you know, basically trying to build housing offsite in a, in a factory and then just kind of bolting it together onsite. Um, like a lot of tech companies, there's a lot of fanfare around this exactly which of these is promising or not is not that's not a race i want to get into but i think it's like really great that a lot of capital is going into this and that they're tinkering with it because i you know as i always say if these guys go bankrupt trying to do this i don't care you know it's like waste investors money trying to solve this problem if you solve it great if you don't i don't have to worry i I, i'm not entirely as optimistic as you are about modular housing and prefabs and kind of and that kind of thing mainly because i feel like i've been reading those headlines since the 1960s not that i was even alive in the 1960s but you know you go to japan you see a bunch of that happening in japan in the 1960s and you know you look at something like habitat 67 in montreal which is 67 obviously and um and everyone gets really excited about this more or less every year for the past 50 years and it's always about to happen and it never really happens. And meanwhile, if you just go to, I don't know, like Germany or somewhere, like they seem to be able to build houses without too much difficulty, at not crazy cost. I, I The zoning and regulatory piece of this is a huge, huge, huge piece of this. I'm not, nobody would accuse my book of underselling <laughs> Definitely that not. piece of it. I was just sort of saying that it is exciting to see people at least try. And also, you know. Why I'm, do you think internationally it has failed for 50 years? I think it's because you can't get a pipeline. Real estate is hardcore boom bust industry. And it 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 is not it's not a widget that you can just produce really reliably. If you look at uh, what the components of growth are in recessions and contractions, housing, construction is the main variable in GDP there. It's not, it's not the biggest one, but it's the biggest one that changes a lot. So there, an economist at, at UCLA even once wrote a paper that the headline was, uh, is the business cycle the housing cycle? The point being that when we're building a lot of housing, we're 
almost never in a recession. We, I think, literally have never been in a recession. And when we're not building a lot of housing, we usually are. I, although I guess I would say right now yeah, might be the exception uh, to that rule. And actually, I wrote a whole article for the Times once that said the economy will be fine. I forget the headline, but it was essentially housing is, a, is in a recession, so we won't go into one. My point being that housing has never really come back in a big way. That's actually why we've never gotten to 3%. And so uh, 3% growth for the overall US economy. And so I actually think that when we do see things come back, really, if, if, if we ever do get on a, a like really crazy growth trajectory, it will be because that housing piece came back. I In the back of my head, when you were saying this about like, housing driving the economy and like you know and all of this talk about being able to build housing at scale um i was thinking well this is this is the history of china over the past like 10 20 years um getting enormous amounts of growth from building you know cities of millions of people from absolutely nothing at very low cost and very effectively or cities of millions of houses with no people in it well i mean that happens too um, but the growth story is is clearly there, and now you know, and then along with that, you get a rise of debt and people well, worry no, and about loans. Well, and well, that's significant. It's interesting though, because if you look at a lot of the early building, that was actually before you saw the significant increase in debt, and that's because you the the building was they had so much capacity to build and it created so much economic growth that it essentially paid for itself. Then you get to a point where. <laughs> You just want to keep building because so, but you aren't increasing economic growth enough, and that's when you start to build up the debt. But do you think, yeah, do you think we can learn anything from China, or is it just like it's way too different? I, I, I'm not very good. I mean, I it seems to me hard to learn from China because people will say things like, uh, "Oh, China built a high speed rail line in five minutes," or I mean, I'm joking. They built, they, they literally built a hospital in Wuhan in. Seven but days. that hospital was, it was one mostly of these, made like, out of plastic. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm sure we can build. I heard that whole thing, I and then I saw pictures. In, uh, I'm like, I'm sure FEMA does that all yeah, the time. Exactly. Break. Like, Agreed. Uh, but um, but being building high speed rail line that is quite something. And I think that, but I, I, our environmental regime is not going to allow that. We don't want it to allow that. Do we want it to be as restrictive as it is, so that California can't even build a high speed rail? Probably not. But. We don't want it like that either. So I, 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 the international comparisons are always hard for me. I mean, on the other side of this, in San Francisco, people always say, well, why aren't we talking about Vienna and the 20s and housing or something? <laughs> I, I, or I, I'm not sure if it's, is it, what's the red Vienna? I don't know what year that was. But anyway, so the, what, what I'm saying, but even today, most people live in public housing. So I just don't think those international comparisons are always so helpful other than they give us ideas, they give us food for thought, they give us inspiration or all those things. But it's it's not so easy to just transfer things onto a particular culture, regime, et cetera. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. In Vancouver, they have a huge foreign buyer problem, which we have to varying degrees in U.S. cities. I think that in Vancouver, it's probably considerably worse than in any other city besides maybe London or Sydney. And it's they they have passed a huge foreign buyer tax. They've passed a, um, so a basically higher property taxes for people who make most of their earnings overseas, i.e. in China. That's where they're targeting it. And there's all sorts of 
like sovereignty issues that come up, like they can do that in ways we can't. And so I'm just like, and so you hear San Francisco and all these people talk about, oh, we should emulate Vancouver and get a vacancy tax. But when they really go down and try to do it, they 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 just don't have the tools well, to do it. And I think that that's interesting because I think it goes back to this idea of how important these laws and also like these local laws are. Because I think, you know, we can talk about bringing down the costs and all of that and like, and even look at the China and say like, well, you know, part of the reason you can do this is because they don't really have to deal with any of these local ordinances. Where in the so in the U.S. context, if it's that local zoning that is so important, I think like we should talk a little bit more about that because I think we haven't really dived yeah. in yet. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So I also want to get to just the human costs of this crisis, because I feel like... That would be a natural segue. Connor, it's you had a great story about that one building um, in your book where, you know, Tryon or whoever, they come in, they buy the apartment building where families are living and they raise rents. Everyone has to leave. And then new people come in and pe- people are really struggling. You've written about people with like three hour commutes now. I mean, the human costs of this crisis are pretty crazy. I mean, even beyond we should talk about homelessness, but just for lower middle class workers, it's pretty brutal out there right now. You have this really interesting line in your book about the homelessness crisis in especially the Bay Area and how a lot of people are talking about how, you know, it's very much tied up with the mental health issues and crises. And you say, yeah, well, it's definitely true that if you're mentally ill, you're more likely to become homeless. But it's also true that if you become homeless, you're more likely to become mentally ill. Like, the causality runs both ways. Yes. I mean, obviously, if people have, like, extreme forms of schizophrenia or something and aren't able to function in society, that that is a different situation from someone who's, like, let's say, depressed and has, like, difficulty holding down a job but you know if they they could probably get it together enough to have like a a 400 if they, if there were if a 400 dollar apartment was available they would not be homeless so i think well the way i think about it is this if you are on drugs a lot if you have no family connections if you have you know severe mental illness or if you have all those things your chances of homeless are probably going to be pretty high but and if you have a stable job and a loving family and, you know, no problems, chances of being homeless are probably pretty low. But the variable in all these things is usually the costs. Um, and you see all these homeless programs where they just like move people somewhere, uh, you know, a couple, like 
50, 60 miles away to Stockton. There's been some kind of recovery programs. And I always go, what are they really getting when they get there? They're getting like a $500 apartment. So what is the variable that matters? And um, one of the other stories- I And do those programs work? Temporarily, they obviously work. Um, and you know, I mean, if you start SSDI checks are like 1300 bucks. So, I mean, if you had a $500 apartment, I think that would work. One of the stories I always tell people is, does everyone remember the movie big with Tom Hanks? Of course. <laughs> so if you recall in big, what happens is he, he becomes Tom Hanks and, and he comes home to his mom and she of course is like, why is this 30 year old standing in my apartment? And so he has to go find somewhere else to go because he can't stay at his friend's house because his friend is also 12 and you can't have like a 30 year old stay with you when you're 12. Uh, and anyway, so they go from, they take a bus from New Jersey to New York, but of course they're kids, right? So they have like $12 or whatever they have in their piggy banks and they go to a really decrepit SRO. The guy gives them the sheets. They go up to the room. There's no toilet in the room. They hear gunshots next door. He puts the, you know, a dresser in front of, and he's scared and crying. That used to be our radically affordable housing Supply. We had SROs, they called them cage hotels in some places. We used to have these vast supply of one unit rooms uh, with no toilet. And it was, it was substandard housing. Maybe we didn't want that to be our uh, affordable housing supply, but it was. And then we destroyed it. I mean, I don't know where that particular SRO was in big, but I bet you it's a condo oh, a of, of some kind. Been, you know, yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean, it was probably on the Bowery. Which I know very well because I walk up it every every day. But so they have all they have now become like you know ace hotels and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we don't have this supply of housing. This radically affordable. I mean, I don't even just talking about affordable. I'm talking affordable that someone who is making you know ten dollars an hour and may work occasionally. Uh, you know, can can afford. And we used to have a, a lot of that in cities where a respite for it, and we don't have it anymore. So I think that we have to be also sort of honest about if we're going to really solve the homeless problem, we're going to have to create neighborhoods that look not substantially different from what those old neighborhoods might have looked like. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that that's something we have to reconcile with. I sometimes say to people, I mean, this probably comes off the wrong way, but I sometimes say to people, we have a shortage of bad neighborhoods. Like, I mean, I'm joking, but I, I and I don't want to call a neighborhood that functions and the lots of people live their lives really, you know, productively in as bad. But when people go to a neighborhood with a lot of kind of chaos and lower income people, they will sometimes call it that. So that's fine. one thing though I think is interesting with homelessness. If you look at the numbers, it's like, it's a horrible problem, but when you look overall, it seems like a solvable problem in the sense of the numbers aren't enormous, right? It is absolutely a solvable problem. And, and if you look at how much money is already being spent, it's being spent very ineffectively because it's actually far cheaper to just give people heavily subsidized apartments than it is to run shelters. 100%. And on top of that, there's so much. So study after study has shown that homelessness is way more expensive than than just building the housing for it. But on top of that, I mean, and this is something you hear presidential candidates talk about all the time, the emergency room, which is like the most expensive possible way you can ever give someone care is like our public hospital. Um, I mean, that has healthcare implications, but it's also all these people are, I mean, if you sleep outdoors, you're going to be, uh, you're going to get more illnesses and you're going to get abused, all these different things. So there's a million different ways in which this, I mean, police hours, I mean, pick your topic. There is so much 
kind of waste in the homeless problem. Uh, I mean, uh, in addition to it being like a moral outrage. And as you said, there's 500,000 homeless people in the country. I mean, that's not that many. So this is absolutely a solvable problem. On top of that, this is where we should make international comparisons. They don't have lots of homelessness in lots of other rich places, but they do have these giant, you know, kind of whether or not you think they're unattractive with these giant like blocks of public housing. And, and, and that is something, maybe this is our good segue to nimbyism, but that is something that not a lot of people want. So one of the things that drove out the, the cage hotels, the SROs, the cheap housing was this phenomenon, which we, you know, love to call gentrification. Um, I think that's originally a British word. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> I think it was in, in London when they first used the term. And so is gentrification bad? Gentrification. So gentrification is a a word that is very hard to get people to say what they what, what it means. Right. Does the gentrification mean some like the price of a neighborhood going up and a lot of people used to live there getting displaced? Or does it mean just a neighborhood getting much wealthier, but people not getting displaced? Um, does gentrification have to be white for it to be gentrification? Uh, there's a guy named Lance Freeman at Columbia. Uh, who is African-American, and he has done a whole study that says that mo a lot of gentrification is black gentrification in, in, in neighborhoods like yeah, Harlem. Harlem, absolutely. Right? So, so um, I think what it is that we mean when we say gentrification is not always so clear. But I think that people getting displaced from the, if, if, if by gentrification we mean prices going up and people who have tethered their lives, their children's schooling, their, of their community, their churches, all these different things to a particular community in particular neighborhood, that all getting uprooted because that community can no longer afford to live there and them having to, and that, and the, and those community ties getting destroyed and those people having to live, move somewhere else for a, a lower quality of life and to kind of community separation. I think that is bad. So, uh, you know, if, if we mean in, in the way I would summarize that is if we mean displacement, absolutely. I think it's horrible. And is the solution to that kind of displacement rent control? So I had something of an evolution of <laughs> rent control on this book because it, it, at a high level, what this book is, is me trying to find lots of different illustrations and lots of different stories of things that interested me. You know, there's a kind of classic way someone does a policy book where they, uh, I mean, this is not a policy book. It's a work of narrative journalism. But I just meant people, when they take on a, a, an intractable topic, they go, here's the topic and they have some anecdotes. And then here's my 10 point plan. And my, in my mind, it was almost the reverse. It was like, here's people working on a lot of different plans and here's how completely difficult it is and how often they get yelled at and how they fail and this is whatever, right? And so rent control, some degree of price control seems like it has to be part of the policy solution. Now, an economist would tell you that uh, we should subsidize people who can't afford homes but we or rent, but we should do it with a a ta like a tax, something that is a direct subsidy of some kind, either a tax credit or an actual voucher. Um, and to that, I say that probably is the optimal theoretical way to do this. But 
nobody other than Cory Booker, who's now unfortunately no longer on the campaign, uh, nobody was talking about something that would be at that scale. And so one of the stories in the book is this 15-year-old girl who gets an 800. So she's a Latino girl and her mom is a... Um, uh, does elder care and cleans homes and then sometimes moonlights as a janitor. So she's the person who's taking care of your uh, grandmother. Uh, she's the person uh, cleaning your home. And then she's the person who comes in to your uh, office as you're leaving to come empty the trash and stuff. So they got an $800 rent increase and they cannot afford that. This 15-year-old girl goes and organizes two apartment complexes. You'll see what happens in the book, but it, it you know, they, they, they have a ferocious fight over the whole thing. If you are, so, and the girl missed a month of school, she had all sorts of stress. Um, her ability to even function uh, was, was so wrecked. I mean, the thing that really broke my heart in the whole thing was she really started to take on the responsibility of saving the whole building. Like she got into this just as, oh, this is like a thing I could do. But by the end of it, she, she kept telling me like, I'm so worried that I've essentially made a promise to all these people that I can keep their, them in their homes. I mean, all these older people, her neighbors, and what if I can't? If you think that that particular situation is tragic and sad or tragic, unfair. Um, it doesn't even acknowledge how the economy works because, you know, you go to Silicon Valley. Yeah, there's a lot of tech jobs, but there's a whole lot of service jobs right next to them. That's how that economy is structured. So the housing market should reflect it a little bit. Um, if that bothers you, there is no policy solution. There is no way that this girl and her family and, you know, people who actually can vote because she's 15, she's 18 now. We had pizza a couple nights ago and she's doing much better, but um, there's nothing on the policy table for her or them other than rent control right now. So I, I am fine with the intellectual argument about what would be the optimal way of solving this if that plan was even like, even like remotely in the cards right now, but it's not. And so I think one of the things I'm really trying to do with the book is see like, not just for you to see the housing crisis, but to feel it. There's, if, if this person in her community are going to go try to engage their democracy as we want them to, this is the solution that has been presented to them as the way to advocate for their cause. And so I, I think that as long as that's the case, they probably, that solution should be definitely part of the policy mix. And perhaps more importantly, regardless of what I think, it is definitely going to be the huge piece of the policy mix because that is what we have given people as as the solution that they can go fight for. I mean, I think that obviously on like a human level, when you hear someone's story, I mean, it is, it's it's tragic and it's it's horrible and, and there you do, there does need to be some solution to this. But I mean- Part of the reason that that situation happened was because you had people moving into a lower income community and, and that could pay these higher rents because there wasn't enough housing built overall. So it, it, I'm not saying that having better zoning laws will fix everything. And of course, there do have to be subsidies, but there are also downsides to rent control in the, in the sense that it can obviously restrict development. And what we've seen, like you see in like Stockholm, like you can create like massive waiting list and then you end up creating a black market. So I'm not saying that's some level of restrictions on how much a rent could go up, you know, perhaps, but it's all part of a larger. I'm, so I'm t first off, I am totally with you that the devil is in the details. 
Uh, and without getting super into those details and boring everyone, um, we have seen, uh, so in California, a whole bunch of people were for the rent cap. Even some of the landlords were for the rent cap. And that was a, uh, I think it's 7% or 5%. I forget what it is, but I think, I think it's a 5% rent cap plus cost of living. So it's like 7% a year. And, you know, that, that, that is even the landlords were like, okay, that, that, that works for me. Um, and there obviously are some places where they could get substantially more than that. But, you know, generally speaking, statewide, a state of 40 million people, they were okay with that. So flip side, there is another bill that w- will essentially come back this year um, that would allow vacancy control, which means uh, well, it would, it's hard to explain what it would do, but essentially, theoretically, cities could start not only regulating the rent to whatever percentage they wanted, 0%, 1%, I think in San Francisco it's literally less than inflation right now, um, they could start regulating the rent on units that are vacant. Um, so even when someone moved out, the rent could never go up again. And not surprisingly, lots of people are against that one. So figuring out exactly where we find the percentage, what's fair, what's not fair, is clearly that's democracy. That's where people are arguing. But um, again, I don't really want to talk about what I think. I mean, not not because I'm like trying to be Mr. Objective, but also just because if we want to understand why we have a really robust tenants rights movement, if landlords want to understand why they're having conference calls, earnings calls right now, where they're talking about rent control being a huge concern, many of the hugest REITs are now having these calls. This is why. And so, okay, now you absolutely are right that we're not building enough housing. But you know, the one thing I will say, a lot of times I talk to tenants people and they, of course, will send you every study that says that rent control is great and and whatever. A lot of them, I do not find them as convincing as some of the economic studies. Uh, and then a lot of them say things that they don't even really want them to say. Like one guy wrote that you should have means testing in it. And someone was like, well, you should just ignore that part. And I'm like, well, that's the whole thing. You know, that's like what it says. Um, but the idea that rent control affects new construction um, does not appear to be super convincing. Um, and that's because typically it's like there's no rent control for 10 years, mm-hmm. 15 years. You know what I mean? Gotcha. I mean all yeah. you got to. So, so there are totally ways we could design this. And I think philosophically, it's never here's where I think we are. It's never super cheap to build new stuff, new stuff. It's never been like, other than like direct subsidies, it's never been that like, oh, here's the brand new luxury building that's like totally affordable everyone. That like time did not exist. However, over time, older housing becomes affordable housing. So what we want is a way for people to get a high return, at least sufficient to get them to build a building, and then that to become our affordable housing stock over time. Figuring, I I think that we can find a way again, some number of years that those two things are happening at once. So one of the reasons this is a question of economics is because I think this entire conversation is predicated on the idea that the housing stock that low-income people live in is privately owned by capitalists who want to get a return on, who want to maximize their, their return on capital. The obvious um alternative to this you've already mentioned it once is public housing um is it just the case that in 21st century america the state 
has no ability to build public housing with and and to make it just pay for itself without having a massive um, profit motive. The state has a huge. So for starters, the state through direct funding builds a ton of housing right now. They just don't manage it. And I try not to be. One of the things that kind of annoys me about the public housing conversation is it seems like so rigidly ideological about who manages it, which seems like a really stupid like distinction to be fighting over. I mean, if nonprofits that are funded by the government are doing a decent job running housing, which maybe they aren't, but we could that would be a separate problem, um, then then I don't understand why it's so much better for everyone if there's an actual housing department that has an office in City Hall or, you know, Washington, D.C. So a lot of times when I hear this fight, I get a little bit annoyed by the kind of implementation of it rather than like, are we building affordable housing for people who can't, who cannot access what the private market is building. Can you yeah. just talk a little bit more about are we building public housing now? Like what kind of housing is it? Where is it? And we aren't are building, we building much, enough. We aren't building much public housing right now. Um our I don't think we're building any, but I I don't know if I can like definitively say that. But we essentially aren't building none. I mean in New York it's all pre-existing, in San Francisco it's all pre-existing. You more or less can't build it in California because of a constitutional amendment called Article 34, which means that people have to, uh, the way, what it says is people have to affirmatively vote for the public housing. To, you know, no one so, ever will. Yeah, yes. So they're actually trying to repeal that this year. But anyway, so we aren't building public housing. However, there is this thing that Ronald Reagan created weirdly uh, when Ronald Reagan did the tax reform that was the biggest tax reform we'd had until the recent Trump tax reform, uh, they created this thing called the low-income housing tax credit. And it's this very bizarre system that's so complicated, but the essential gist of it is corporations uh, effectively buy, they, they they do actually a transfer, it's not really buy, but they get these tax credits that offset, that uh, it's a coupon against their income taxes. And then they invest in a building that is only available to people below a certain income. There's a lot of critiques of this program and they run the gamut. I mean, one is that it's overly complicated and so it all goes to consultants and lawyers. The other is that it can be corrupt. Um, the other is that the income limits are too high. I mean, whatever critique you want to put on it um, are bad. In fact, you know, it's funny, even affordable housing advocates will say to me, I hate this system, but don't ever write that because it's all we have. So, uh, and, and I'm not convinced that if Washington got rid of it, they would replace it with the thing I wanted. So that is in effect, our public housing system right now, I think it's built something like three and a half million units since 1986. But, um, you know, and again, most of those, for most of a lot of it's built by for-profit builders, which I don't need to be super, I don't care about that. I mean, the same construction workers work for nonprofit and for-profit um, entities. I mean, if you've ever been to a developer's office, it's like the number of people that are in this room on this podcast right now. I mean, you go in, it's just like a guy and his and, and an assistant and like maybe two people. All the developer does is like go and borrow a bunch of money and then hire a bunch of people who all work for someone else. So how we build this and who manages it and all that, I am not trying to be super ideological about, but do we need a, a ton more money for subsidized housing of some kind? Almost certainly. And also we need a lot, 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 lot more money for vouchers. Um, 
these affordable, you know, just rental vouchers that that I think are, are they're so proven in how effective they are for keeping people housed and also out of poverty and, and st- stable. And, and, one, and one of, make- yeah, and one of the things, one of the points you make in the book is that the reason why modular construction and prefab and that kind of stuff has historically failed is is the cycle of the house of, of the housing boom and bust, and that if you had a consistent demand from the public to just keep on building houses through the cycle, a lot of those problems would go away. And possibly for the first time since 1948, housing construction um, productivity could improve. Yes. So um, totally. So, I mean, we have a long history in this country and every other country, whether it's Tesla's or solar panels or whatever else of subsidizing industries until that we want to kind of um, no, so whether or not we're actually subsidizing the the modular housing industry is, but I meant creating demand so that an industry can be created. So I, I yeah, I totally, I, I mean, like I said, I think it's a great place for the private sector to be tinkering around. I don't want to become some techno optimist. I'm just more saying I'd rather them be investing money in that and trying to solve that problem than the next social media app. Let's have the zoning conversation because it's, the core of the book. There's so much talk in the book about SB85 and zoning and what, you know, how. It was SB827? And no, but it was just SB50. That was the one that just failed, but they were the same thing, basically. Um, And basically, it's all of these attempts by the California state government to make it easier for people to create more supply in the housing market. And it's all about zoning and the zoning can happen at hyper-local levels and you wind up getting like incredibly tough fights in tiny little places like Lafayette, California, which should probably not even be a city in the first place. Um, And it's fascinating to see these fights and to join you as you sort of watch these fights evolve over time. And then in the back of my head, I'm thinking Frisco, Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's a Dallas suburb, right? Which is a Dallas suburb which basically didn't exist 10 years ago and is now like home to five Fortune 500 companies and is building like eight high schools a year and it's just growing like wildfire. And the difference is obvious, right? One is there's a bunch of empty space where people can just build as much as they like and there are no NIMBYs and it's easy and it's one of the reasons why Texas is the fastest growing state in the union. And the other one is where you... There is no empty space. You have to build up. You have to increase density. And that's so much harder. I mean, that fight that you detail in in Lafayette that Felix just talked about and was in your New York Times piece just really lays it all out. I mean, it's the set. The guy wants to build, what, like a few hundred homes. Then he's like wrangled down to some compromise where he's going to build 40 units. But that's not that's still too much. And now the the whole piece of land is just empty. Like that's what struck me because I had always thought San Francisco was like full, full up and there wasn't any more land to build on. But actually there is land, but it's zoned all crazy and no one will let you do anything. Yes. By the way, I will say, I don't know if you guys saw this, President Obama tweeted that story, um, which <laughs> which I was like, wow, like, oh my God, you know. Um, and by the way, a couple of things. One, I would push back hard against the idea that there's no NIMBYs in Texas because building a bunch of exurbs uh, is still often a form of nimbyism. Like if you tried to totally, put yeah. a a 
high density thing next to someone in, in, in Texas, they would complain the same way anybody would. And the flip side of that is if you try to put high density next to someone who owns like a $2 million house in San Francisco that they're quietly pulling a bunch of money out of, uh, it turns out they're not as liberal as they think they are. So, um, anyway, I think that, okay, let me start with the beginning that zoning generally is a great idea. You know, zoning was invented in Germany. I think um, it even predates that. You go, you find any city in the world that has ever existed, and there's obviously like a certain logic to it. They don't put like the, you know, pigsty next to the restaurant. And you know what I mean? Like the, the, we as humans have all sorts of things that we, you know, we excrete things, whatever. My, not to get too nasty, but my point is, is that, Life is organized in a certain way. We don't want things that are pollute or are dangerous next to things. No you know, strip right. clubs yes. next All, to yeah. elementary schools. Okay, well, you know, th- that's a moral choice. But <laughs> no, okay, anyway, no, I'm just anyway. So um, we have had a uh, uh, marijuana dispensaries near schools fight in uh, San Francisco. But you guys in this police state of New York do not have legalized marijuana yet. So anyway, um, so some kind of zoning is is obviously important. And I actually think... There should be lots of local control over zoning, but it should be that they have a plan. That plan is a big fight, a participatory process, all the things we idealize about local government, and then they should stick to that plan. And what I thought was illustrative about that Lafayette story is that that city, certainly nobody who worked in that city at that time had anything to do with that zoning. But you inherit a lot of legacies when you move to a place or you know, we all inherit laws of the constitution or in, in our states and cities. That was where... People had decided that high-density housing should go. That was their plan. And the developer was just living by that plan. If they had decided, which they've subsequently written me in emails, oh, your story's bad and I hate you because that, that building should actually be closer to downtown. But they've, of course, downtown was, of course, like just like a mile away. But they've fought a bunch of stuff in downtown too. But if they really did say, look, our community has decided we want to build... Uh, you know, this capacity of housing, which is consistent with the state's needs, but we all want, we want it all over there, not over here, you know, for like a logic that makes sense. Um, And in this case, it would be so that it could be closer to BART and downtown. I would say, that's great. That community should be doing that. The problem is they don't do that. They create a big plan uh, for all this housing only because they have to. And then they fight over every single individual project. Right. but well, but I guess my only thing is I I agree with you to a certain extent. I mean, I think obviously some zoning is important. Regulations are important to for. Health wow, and you're the libertarian in the group. Gr- <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, but like, but I guess what you're describing is the natural result of a system like that. I mean, I think it, this is where you probably do need a little bit more federal oversight because if you have so much local control, that is going to very likely lead to discrimination and even discrimination based on race, but also discrimination based on not wanting new people in there. So first so, off, I agree with every single thing you just said. I'm more saying like there should be a process that all these communities should be given a chance and, and a realistic chance. It's years, whatever people need to, to create the plans, but there, there should be a hard uh, penalty if they're not doing it. So I totally agree with everything you're saying. I think the oversight should be, and you know what? To some but wouldn't, extent. Wouldn't the result just be that the communities 
put forth the plan saying like a banana plan, basically build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. And because that guarantees. No, but I, that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I, there should be a plan on a, how much you have. A banana plan? A banana plan. A bananas <laughs> are like ultra nimbies. <laughs> yes. It, yes, exactly. So I think that I, I'm basically agreeing with both of you, but what I'm saying is there should be a plan that says, here's what you have to build in a region. Here is what this region is going to need based on its job constraints and stuff like that. And then individual communities can figure that out based on a certain number. So, and then there so should they be have, these hard penalties. Right. So above they that. have like a minimum amount of new. We do have that in California, but there are no teeth in it. Okay. Uh, and I think they, they have that most places, but they're very rarely teeth in it. By the way, I would say this is basically what's happening. We're just kind of watching it in slow motion right now. Uh, Cal- the biggest fight in California last year was over this SB 50, which was a bill that would have made it possible to build four to eight story build, I think four story buildings near public transit, but in half mile of public transit. Um, and then, as I said, I think at the beginning of the show, every presidential, every democratic presidential candidate has put forth a housing plan and all of them, including the, the Bernie plan with national rent control, um, have a large zoning component that all the presidential candidates even all the that all the democratic presidential candidates even released a housing plan is best i can tell unprecedented that all of them have a zoning component is almost borderline weird if you think about it like it's they're all inserting themselves in this hyper local issue don't get me wrong they sometimes have education plans and other local things but this still seems like quite extraordinary and they all kind of congeal to basically what you're saying which is uh if you're not building enough, we're going to step in. Now, again, because, what and form this they is, take and all that. Yeah. And this is the issue which you introduced right at the beginning of the book, basically, which is there's an incredible asymmetry in any political fight between the people who live in the neighborhood on the one hand and the people who hypothetically might live in the neighborhood in the future and benefit from you know, new housing in that neighborhood who have no political voice because they don't live there. Yeah, well, that, if if I had to find, like, one of the things I found so fascinating when I was doing this book, I'm from California. Um, I've always been sort of obsessed with California history. So a lot of the old school 70s stuff, I actually kind of knew some of that stuff. I, I read about Jerry Brown before. But the thing that absolutely fascinated me was I came across this book called The Environmental Protection Hustle. And when I had originally done my research and called a bunch of different people, they were like, oh, you got to check out this book. It came out in the 70s. I was like, what the hell is this book? So I went and found this book. And this guy, man, this book could have been written like yesterday. It was published in 1979. And despite the kind of Fox News title is a very like reasonable book. He's like, look, uh, you know, we should have open space and all these things. But wherever we decide we're going to build housing, we should like actually build housing there. And he says this problem is going to require federal oversight because you could never create a constituency of, of people who have housing consumers because they don't know who they are yet. And. When I met Sonia Trous, who's the kind of leader of this group called the Bay Area Renters Federation or BARF uh, for for the book, I was like, oh my God, like this is, I mean, whether or not she'll be successful, uh, you know, long term. I mean, her group is, subsequently this woman, Laura, who's kind of the real like CEO of the organization. I mean, she's she's actually built it into like a powerful thing and is an organizer and fundraiser and is like really 
the architect of the whole thing. They, they are trying to sort of create this constituency. And I just thought that was like a fascinating idea because when you look at what the policy papers have been saying for, you know, 40 longer than either of those two people have been alive, they've always said this would be an impossible thing. And so I just kind of found this conundrum so intriguing. Um, and, and, and it probably is going to require all the things we just said, which is, you know, a federal role, a state role, but this is the kind of group that's going to be pushing for that, or at least being a counterbalance for it. And, and I, I'm curious, just because you said, like, you know, you read this book from the 1970s that was saying the same things we're saying now. And I guess there's obviously the worry that someone 30 years, 40 years from now will be saying, oh, I was looking back at this book from the, you know, so what What about now do you think is different? I don't think anything's different. I think, I think I have to say, I read, I read your book. And I read it as a deeply pessimistic book. I read oh, it really? as as like somebody. Not, one reviewer called it an optimistic counter narrative. So. I, I, I I read it as like nothing has changed what? since the nineteen seventies. The systemic. I, I I read it like a little bit like watching The Wire. There are all of these very deep like embedded gods who are just going to foil the no, best laid Felix, plans, no. and all of this is going to fail. <laughs> so I read it, it like. Uh, we used to have, after World War II, the federal government got its act together. We all built a lot of stuff. And then it's been like nimbyism until now. The crisis has gotten so bad. There's actually people who want to have more housing and are really pushing for it. And there's this real change happening. There's Democratic candidates with housing proposals. There's some other cities that have passed up zoning. There's actually something happening now that does seem different. Okay, That's so my takeaway. Conclusion. Are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um, I am, I am optimistic. So Anna asked, um, what were we going to look back on? If I am so lucky that people look back on this book and I'm still in print or they have to buy it, uh, through some strange rare bookstore, which is how I bought the environmental protection hustle. I think that, um, what we're seeing. So what's fat. So there's this woman in San Francisco named Sue Hester, who is kind of the kind of classic seven. She is portrayed as the kind of classic seventies NIMBY. Some of the kind of her contemporaries have said, why are there no more Sue Hesters? Where are the Sue Hesters of today? And someone tweeted, there are, they just want to kill Sue Hester. I think what I learned from that joke, maybe that was too, too long of a windup, but is that that's the baby boom kind of generation. And then here's the millennial generation coming around. And there's a lot of millennials. There's all these like articles written about millennials. They're not special. There's just a lot of them that makes them special. And as a Gen Xer who got nothing other than the movie reality bites and, you know, okay, cola, which was a test product that got, you know, shelved pretty quickly. I never was part of a demographic bubble that was big enough to really matter. And I think that they are going to change policy. And I think that whatever they do is going to lead to a world that their children don't want. And then we're going to like backlash against that in some way. So I actually think that A, it's generally optimistic because these people are organizing around these issues. They are trying to do it in a diverse way, though obviously they've had some major problems with that. Uh, but the fact that they're even like groaning and, and having a huge you know, fight and consternation over that lack of diversity is so radically different from the seventies that that alone is quite positive. It's a, it's a, it may not be enough, but it is, it is, it is a difference and a step. And they're, they've absorbed this ethos that more housing is better and that this is a social good and a social thing. And 
That alone seems like a huge change. Um, the first time I met Sonia for coffee a million years ago, she said to me, everybody shows up to a city council meeting to complain about housing. And not only are they listened to, even though they're just like the one person on the block, they are greeted as a hero. Nobody thinks they're trying to pump up their own property values. So she said, I want that person to be seen as an asshole, you know, or a selfish asshole. And so I think that that kind of feeling is being absorbed by young housing, youngish housing. I mean, Sonia's 37, right? But, you know, like youngish housing consumers today. And that ethos will kind of hold though. I mean, because I mean, one of the things that's amazing to me is when I meet these people who kind of came up in the 70s environmental movement, I mean, they still hold on to that tight, even though some of the things they fought for originally are kind of not having social justice uh, outcomes, right? And I think that these younger people today and millennial generation today are generally speaking, becoming more pro-housing, whether it's public housing or market rate housing, and they want more opportunity for more people to live in a like more dense setting. I think that's a huge change. And I think that will over time hold. Quick numbers round. Um, you go first. You Maybe go first. Better? Oh, number. Okay. 50% is the number. There are 200,000 unsheltered homeless people in America. 100,000 of them live in California. Okay. Anna. Uh, my number is $525,000. That's the average household income of the most expensive city in the country, according to Bloomberg, which is Atherton, California. Mm. And I think like three of the top four are all in California and like half a million dollars for average. That's that's saying something. The weird part is that sounds like an incredibly low, low. <laughs> for, for Atherton. And I, it's almost certainly some function of. Well, it's an average and not a median, right? So it but could even, be good. Living... Even then. Yeah. Yeah. My number is 8 million. That's the number of Americans who have started a crowdfunding campaign for themselves to pay for medical bills or health care treatments. Million. 8 million. Wow. Um, and then that's from a survey done by the University of Chicago. And then 12 million people also said they started crowdfunding for someone they know for health care. Um, part of the problem with high real estate costs is that you don't have a lot of money left over for much else and health care costs keep going up. Um, and my number is $627.50, which is how much it would cost you to buy a share of E-Trade in April 1999 <laughs> during the dot-com bubble. And E-Trade, of course, just got bought by Morgan Stanley for about $55 a share. So that wasn't a good investment. I think that's it. Connor, thank you so much for coming onto this show. It was nerd-tastic. We loved it. It was everything we love about Slate Money in one guest. Um, come back anytime and congratulations on your book. Thank you also to Jasmine Molly for producing. Thank you all for listening to this housing episode of Slate Money and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.